Welcome to the Curious Humans Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hi there. I'm so, so, so excited to share this episode with meditation teacher, podcast host, and all-round fascinating human, Corey Allen. I've been listening to his podcast, The Astral Hustle, for probably years now. And I had so much fun being on the other end of the line and digging into his fascinating mind. We didn't have time to cover it in this episode, but Corey also has a background in music and he produces something called binaural beats, which I've been using daily for the last few months to both meditate and focus at work. And you can find these as well as the lowdown on his new book called Now Is The Way which is available from today at nowistheway.com. And Corey was kind enough to send me an advanced copy of this new book. And as you'll hear in the episode, he has an amazing gift for walking a line between being playful, but also just dropping these deep insights and practical wisdom on mindfulness. This was really another one of those conversations that just lit me up. It felt like the time flew by and we bounced between topics on the role of humour in spiritual exploration and the upside of impermanence to some of the more practical aspects of meditation, how it changes the way we experience the world and how we can get out of our own way to risk being more human. Okay. Without any further chit-chat from me, please sit back and enjoy this heartfelt, joy-infused, and at times slightly ridiculous episode with the wonderful Corey Allen. So, I'm here with Corey Allen, who is the host of the Astral Hustle podcast and recent author of a mind-stretching new book called Now is the Way, which we will dive into. But I'd like to begin, as usual, with the question, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something that you were curious about growing up? Hmm, uh, I was curious. Um, I think just the first story that comes to mind was curious about questioning religion. Uh, I remember even as a kid, like, uh, I would say my, uh, you know, my parents separated when I was young. So, uh, my, my mom, I would call her kind of like a safety Christian. Like she's one of those that says that she's a Christian, but doesn't, or for, I guess, long decades of time, didn't actually really go to church or anything. Um, kind of the, let's, let's maybe let's class that up a little bit. Let's call it Pascal's wager. How about that? (laughs) Um, but huge Blaise Pascal fan. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, I remember just as a kid finding the whole, like in America anyway, especially growing up in Texas, like mm-hmm. going to a, a little church every once in a while and just the organization of alleged spirituality in that way seemed odd to me. I, I wasn't like, this is bullshit. I was just like, this is peculiar and it smells weird in here. Why has everyone got dry, clean clothes on? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, 
I do remember like thinking how as a very young kid, like I would just get in the floor and like draw and stuff, but I would listen until after the, you know, the preacher or whatever would stop talking and everyone would start clapping at once or whenever they would like dismiss them and like, you know, 200 people would all start talking at the same time. Like there's something unnatural about like what's happening here. So I began like testing in my, just kind of in my head, asking myself questions out of curiosity to what was the alleged divine power. And I would be at uh, like daycare, which is essentially just, you know, for uh, a parent that has to work and can't take care of their kid, they'll go drop them off at a place and others will take care of them. <clears throat> and so I would go to a place like that. And I remember like, uh, I think it was more of a convenience of anything. As a little kid, I would be at this, uh, dropped off at this Christian daycare, Christian-ish, Christian-adjacent daycare center. And I would, uh, like they would try to force and inflict their ideology upon the kids. And um, I remember always just asking questions about why and what was going on. And they would get really angry at me. And I remember one time there's this little like green hanging light bulb that they had. I know it sounds weird. It's because it is weird. <laughs> there's this little green hanging light bulb. And at the end of the day, if you were good, you could go by and like touch the green light bulb. And it was just like warm. It wasn't hot. And they would say, that that was the warmth of God's love, right? <laughs> Touch that. And I remember just as a little kid, I was like, no, it's a light bulb. And they would get really pissed off and make me go in the hallway, which I actually, I enjoyed that more. Um, that was a common theme growing up was being sent into the hallway by teachers and guardians. Uh, so then I would start doing things like asking myself, just like while I was waiting for my mom to pick me up from said daycare center, I would be like, okay, if the next car that comes around the corner is my mom, then there's a God <laughs> and it wouldn't be. Innovative. All right, how about the next one? All right, how about the next one? And I would like put my finger in the door and like slowly close it. Like if there's a God, this won't hurt. And it would hurt. And I'd be like, uh. So just little things like that. And, you know, you can wipe all the religiosity from that aside. It's basically just like a very young, like a four-year-old, five-year-old mind trying to inquire about the nature of what isn't seen, like what isn't testable, how, how are we constructing the things we believe and how can we verify those things? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can, I can really relate to that. I went to a school where I was uh, kind of forced to go to Abbey twice a week for the assembly and I found myself asking lots of, lots of kind of similar questions. Um, and I've been exploring a, a theory that our, our kind of life purpose is in some way connected to the stories that resonated with us when we were younger. And I was wondering if you had any favorite books or stories growing up that kind of come to mind. Well, what's funny is that none of, uh, neither of my parents were like readers or interested in any, I guess, intellectual topics whatsoever. Um, so the earliest stories I often saw were those of like uh, musicians because mm -hmm. they were both into music. My dad was very much into Johnny Cash and like ZZ Top and just kind of badass like Southern people. And my mom was very much into like Elton John and Prince and Michael Jackson and Madonna. And, so, and you know, this is the eighties. Um, and so I remember like, from early on taking note of those, the kind of the archetypes of those people's lives and finding them very interesting, particularly someone like Johnny Cash or Prince or something like that. 
um, and Elton John. So my first concert was Elton John whenever I was a little kid. Wow. Um, I remember thinking, uh, just seeing him like coked out of his mind uh, in this insanely elaborate costume, playing in this giant arena, just playing his heart out, you know, taking it to another dimension. And I remember thinking, okay, wow, this is like, this is interesting. This is something different. Like music is awesome, you know? Um, but as far as like the first, I became very obsessive. With, I think part of it, you know, as, as an adult, I can look back and say, I think part of it was because I grew up in such a chaotic uh, environment as far as the family structure went, um, that I, I think that my slight OCD that I had with certain movies and, and bands or artists or whatever was almost a way of block, putting blinders on and just going like forcing myself to go very internal um, and creating like a, a tunnel to live in as opposed to having to live in my, the ecosystem of my life. And so, um, yeah, I would like get a tape, like a cassette tape, uh, and just I would listen to it over and rewind it and listen to it and rewind it and listen to it like like obsessively. I would listen to something like thirty times like in a day, you know, just in, just almost insane, just the same song or the same album just over and over for like weeks or months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually didn't really stop until I was like in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Like I've probably listened to "Bitches Brew" by Miles Davis at least a thousand times, like because I listened to it like three times a day for three or four years, you know, and it's like, um, and so, um, yeah, man, it, those stories are ones that really perked up for me. But then as funny as it might be, like, uh, in the eighties as a little kid, I remember the first like movies that I just became completely obsessed with like that were the Ninja Turtle movies. <laughs> so <laughs> they made, I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, the Teenage Mutant course, Ninja Turtles, but, <laughs> they made uh, th- that was huge, like in the in the late eighties, and uh, they made some movies, some motion pictures of of those. And uh, the first one, yeah, my brother and I had the VHS of that, and we used to just like watch it and rewind it, watch it and rewind it, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so that that story is kind of one of the earlier stories that really resonates in my mind. Uh, as as silly and as fun as that is, <laughs> no, not at all. It, it makes me think of um, one of the, the gifs that I overuse is one of um, I think it's Michelangelo kind of meditating, and uh, <laughs> so nice. so it it seems like um, at least to, to me anyway that whilst most people kind of apply their curiosity to the outer world in their early life, it's it's almost like you went deep inside. And do you, mm-hmm. do you feel like some of, some of Corey's like chaos and early challenges and curiosities kind of paved the way for the work that you're, that you're doing now? Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that, um, the, the way that I learned to, that the inside of my mind and the, like what, you know, the Viktor Frankl awareness realization thing of like the world inside my body, the world inside my mind is mine and free. I'm free to think and like live in the world that, that um, not, not as separate from reality, but a private reality. Um, and that unfolded and I began to understand that with more clarity as I got older, for sure. Mm. Awesome. So, um, so I just, as I mentioned last night, I finished devouring your first book, Now is the Way, which uh, I believe will be live and out in the world when this episode drops. 
And um, yeah, I, I think the reason that I, I really love listening to your podcast is that I think you've got this, this almost magical ability to act as a bridge between what I feel are like a really potent, but also kind of dense, mystical Eastern philosophies and, and the modern world. Um, and, and I think just something that came to mind last night was that um, it feels like reading this was one of the few books that I've come across that was kind of sincere but not serious. And uh, I'll probably get into trouble for saying this, but I, I spend a fair amount of time in, in Ubud here in Bali. And I get the sense that some people out here kind of carry their, their spiritual quests like this. It's like it's this heavy weight. Um, and I think of that in contrast to say watching videos of the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu who get together and they're like, they're giggling like school children. Um, yeah. so, so before we kind of dive into the content of the book itself, do you have any thoughts on the role of humor and even, even kind of absurdity in the context of spiritual exploration? Oh, certainly. Well, firstly, I just thank you for your very kind and generous <laughs> Uh, compliments. Uh, I take that as a high honor and it's certainly something that I have set out to try and do is translate the, you know, the, my earliest uh, investigation into Eastern thought and, and really Western thought in general and that of uh, also the neuroscience of, you know, which is an umbrella for psychology and um, uh, all, all that type of things. Um, was that of like a, a young man full of testosterone and like, being like, I'm going to, I'm going to dominate this, this <laughs> canon of knowledge and show, like, I'm going to go as deep and as learn as much. All I'm going to hold the ocean in my mouth, you know? And that was, I think because I could understand that stuff from a young age and I had the attention and, and tenacity to read a mountain of 800 page books on technical shit. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, like enjoyed it. I think part of it was because it was generally fascinating to me. And the other part of it was because there was a slight narcissism to being able to digest all of that stuff. Um, the technicality of it, you know, uh, I gained the propensity to carry all of that stuff. And as I got older and had endless, I'm sure, annoying conversations to be on the other side of, I realized like, oh, wait, and truly through my podcast is where I, I really like came, it came to clarity. It was like, okay, so if the person you're talking to doesn't understand what you're saying, it's your fault as a communicator, not their fault because they're quote unquote stupid. <laughs> and that's how I used to, you know, as a young man, I used to like to go through life thinking like, oh, I'm smarter than everyone else. And they don't know what the fuck I'm talking about <laughs> because I'm just like talking about some uber technical thing that you'd have to be interested or in fascinated in the field to, to have a conversation. Um, and for some reason, whipping it out, with someone who's a near stranger seems like a domination, therefore an elevation of one's own idea of themselves. Whenever truly you're just being an asshole and you have no idea, uh, no sensitivity to the context of a human interaction. Um, so I do appreciate you saying that um, I'm able to translate that stuff to something more understandable. Uh, and now I, uh, um, I forget what was the second part of what you asked. Just, me, just the connection between kind of absurdity and humor in the context of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How could I forget? Well, I was just being silly by forgetting that. So, yeah, I think it's a really, really important connection. I think it's a critical connection because uh, I've always found humor not only as uh, 
you know, vital to my well-being, but also um, it's a crucial element to understanding. You know, I think our being here, humans, like, you know, nested within this strange body, nested on a strange planet, with all the things that we've agreed with each other are the ways of being. And the fact that we exist at all amongst the infinity of the universe is completely ridiculous. I mean, it's so, so ridiculous. And like that thought rarely ever leaves my mind. I was talking to Jin Sidini recently and uh, we were sharing this thing that I, I hadn't brought up before because I just, I didn't ever think that other people did this, but like I have a spot in my mouth, like in the inside of my gum or like not my gum, but my lip where it's sort of like tough because I bite it so much, so many times trying not to laugh, just going through life because I have, <laughs> I know it might make people feel uncomfortable or they won't understand or like it would take, it would be too um, self-indulgent almost to explain why I'm laughing about stuff. So I get to, I just try and bite this little part of my inner lip to keep from laughing like in life situations because just the absurdity of our being is so overwhelming to me and so joyful. So I think that that's one part of just life that I, I think that laughter and the, the absurdity and ridiculousness of the illusion we are all under, the spells which has been cast on us through our incarnation is hilarious. Um, but then also understanding the deeper things and getting into the more deeper uh, details of ideas around being, uh, I think with the growth and awareness that comes from understanding the human condition or the, the deeper inner life, uh, with that growth of awareness comes, it must come a growth of your hilaritas, as Robert Anton Wilson put it. Like, because to have that level of understanding about consciousness or being, you, you must inherently have the same, uh, you, you, will, you must have a gross sense of humor about it because like that level of macro um, comprehension is not possible without seeing the absurdity of it all. And in the, the natural elicited response from that is laughter, which is why I think you'll find most people who are like quote unquote enlightened are often pretty hilarious. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 And um, something, something that I noticed, and this might be connected to the humor piece in some ways, but your, your writing, it feels, it feels very embodied. And to me, the language is kind of, it's kind of poetic and, and almost delicious. And obviously I didn't get to see the initial drafts, but it sounds like in some ways the process of writing this has been for you almost like a, like a journey going from your head to your heart. And um, I'm just, yeah, just wondering, does that resonate at all? And what kind of surprised you in the process of putting this book out into the world? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly, that's precisely <laughs> what happened. Um, I think it's because like artistically, I come from a very intellectual place a lot of times um, because I like, I live in a world of concepts and ideas generally um, and abstract uh, ways of thinking. Uh, and then I translate that down into something that that I almost like in musically over the years, I found the feeling when it's halfway out of me, like when the idea or the concept or the abstract is, 
is taking shape in the material world or the, like whatever the med- the musical medium, I then find the way to create the emotion. And then that's how I feed it back into myself. Mm-hmm. And then once I can do that, then it becomes this connected like cyclical force thing where I go, oh, okay, now all the parts are in place, um, which is interesting. I've never, I haven't really thought of that until this moment. Um, but like when writing, I suppose the same process, I had to kind of relearn that again, where it was all conceptual and very heady and intellectual. And uh, then I had to get it out of me to see it, to go, oh, wait a second. Okay, this is ridiculous. This is not, this is exactly what I don't like in books. And it took some time. Yeah. And, and really, all, I spent the time because of just respect of the craft and of the people who uh, might be reading it uh, to then, as you said, digest all that, put it aside, drop down to the heart, and then write from a place of feeling and a place of humanity as opposed to a place of just uh, ideas. Mm. Mm. And in, um, in one of the early chapters, you, you mentioned that about like 15 years into your, into your meditation practice, it was like something broke loose inside and that mm. this led to a kind of a liberating experience of shedding tears of joy and sorrow. And you wrote, um, I think the quote was, it was as if a smile had come from somewhere else to weigh you. And this, mm-hmm. yeah, this really struck a chord with, I think, my own experiences of navigating grief and loss. And could you, could you speak a little to how this felt at the time? And maybe any theories as to why you think it, it took 15 years of, of practice to, to reach this <laughs> state of, of you know, total surrender? Sure. Yeah. I, well, I'm glad you picked that out. It's a, an important um, to me, just personally. It's an important moment and in a one of the lines in the book that I'm most um, proud of, or or I suppose happy that it it found its way out of me and into the onto the paper. Um, yeah. Like I think one, I'm just stubborn, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. Um, there's that I, I do, I've always had the habit of thinking and feeling like whatever anything is, I can just like figure it out. And that, you know, to do, to do with me, obviously I'm not saying I can go be an astrophysicist or whatever, but like, um, like if I have a problem, I believe I can figure it out. That's how I've always been. And I'll, I'll, you know, work myself until I'm, like exhausted and and almost have nothing left i'll black out until you know I'll, until i can figure this thing out um and so i've looked at myself as the same type of project like i'm gonna figure me out and like i i tried you know a lot of things over the years to as you said process that trauma and the pain and the clinging and whatever it might be and um i think it was a lot of things you know like someone told me, you know, my dad died out of nowhere whenever I was 20 and we did not have a good relationship. Uh, well, I mean, we just didn't have a relationship. He was self-involved and interested in other things. And there was a lot of like destructive trauma around when he was around as a little kid and, and, and our interactions henceforth. And um, someone told me after he died, like that you won't be able to even understand it for five years and you won't begin the process of for 10 years. And I was like, whatever, I'll be fine. And like, I was like, I'll be fine two days, you know, mm-hmm. which I felt like I was because I could just instantly 
intellectualize it and move on. But that's, of course, because my emotions were very calcified and shut down. I was com- complete, like, head mind and, and not in heart mind as a form of protection, you know, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as that over the years, you know, I found what whoever that was that told me that that rang true you know it's like five years in it's like whoa <laughs> i can't believe like everything that's happened i mean it's a big crazy story of like um all the shit that unfolded from that um and then just a lot of like just a lot of uh darkness you know from a lot of very unhuman stuff from like people who were connected to him but not in my family you know i don't really have a family to be honest with you other than my my wife's uh, family. Um, and so, yeah, you know, as far as like a, a big, you know, members of a group or anything like that. Uh, and so it was just like, yeah, processing all that. And then 10 years went by and um, I began to understand it and like feel it. And I, I weirdly was able to have a better relationship with him 10 years after he was dead, mm-hmm. you know, because I began to understand. Um, there's that saying of like that notion of causality where like you can't be mad at a tornado like for destroying something. <laughs> you know, it's just the circumstances of of nature that arise and then unfold. And it's not about necessarily the destruction that the tornado makes. It's what can you learn and how can you rebuild and can you feel grateful for the fact that you survived the experience, right? That's what we can take from any suffering that we encounter. And I begin to not only understand that, but embody and feel that. And I begin to just really work on letting go and forgiving and like letting go of that resentment and understanding why I am the way I am because of the way he was and the reason in the way that like he wasn't around. And so I had no male figure in my life. So I became my male figure in my life. And i figured like there's no one to show me the male element of the world so it's going to be me so i have to pick up the machete and hack my way through the jungle with everything and that's why i turned out you know that's a big part of the reason that why i am the way i am like completely self-sufficient and like that instinct to solve every pro- of my own problems is because of that you know it's because of like okay i knew like i was just on my own early and it's like, all right, well, it's up to me. If I want to survive, I got to figure it out. And that's just the way I've, I've been programmed or I program myself rather. Um, and so I begin to just let go of that resentment and that, that anger and frustration with him, with not having a loving, you know, healthy attachment and then him dying because he didn't take care of himself. Um, and with a lot of resentment for, for all of that. And um, at the same time, you know, really doing a lot of like deep work with allowing uh, just, I realized that even in my own relationships, my life, that it was like, I was hitting this tipping point where it was like just crucial that I tap into my feeling and raise my emotional IQ because I'd, even though that I'd really overcome the anger and like the, the more narcissistic part of myself that had been around whenever I was younger, I, um, I got to where I, you know, I, I was very, was fine. Like I was living in my head, but I was like peaceful and, and very open and vulnerable and compassionate, but I was still living in my head, you know, for the most part. And I realized that, okay, I got to, I gotta like let that go and drop down into the heart and start really opening that up. And, um, so that's what I started focusing on. And, 
and through that process, I was able to just let go of a lot of that stuff, tap into the compassion and just start taking that armor off mm. and opening up mm. and allowing myself to feel and, and process and go through that stuff. And, and in that, you know, my moments of transformation, you know, active transformation often occur in meditation because, you know, you're dialing, you're opening up and you're creating that empty space, that, that negative space for you to breathe and allow things to pass through and to move and to reflect and so on. And mm. as I've described before, the, you know, the fragments of the self that are shattered, you know, the different pieces of you that exist within are the broken pieces of the mirror that then through the meditation or through creating the space, they have the, the space to start to reconnect into one singular piece of mirror of, of yourself so that you can look into it and quote unquote reflect and then begin to understand what you are and then begin to author your future. And in that process is whenever I had, um, those those moments and i think that that idea of the smile coming from somewhere else to where me it really was interesting of like i started as i put in the book just like crying not crying but it was like um i don't really know what to describe that like it's just tears coming from somewhere um it's like a a physiological response to processing just a lifetime of of pain and not wanting to you know, I always wanted to hold it in because I didn't want anyone else to feel it. I didn't figure, I didn't want to express it at other people, even though I was doing that, right? Just not like, and it was my blind spots. I was like forcing that. I was uh, expressing that stuff towards people, but not realizing, but thinking that holding it in, like was going to keep it from other people. And I just started recognizing all of that. And, and as I let it go, it was just this cleansing acceptance feeling. And then I think I finally felt like, legitimately at peace and happy whenever for the first time without that those thousand you know meat hooks pulling at my heart uh down into the abyss uh for once and i was like okay like i'm finally here like i finally think like i hit sea level and that's what happened when i hit sea level Mm. Mm. wow and i'm yeah, as you were as you were sharing that, what what came up was the a phrase. That I don't think I don't think it made it into your into the book, but it was this this idea of the upside of impermanence. And oh, yeah. <laughs> which, that which was in the, that was in the second draft. Second draft yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, when you when when you said that on the on one of the podcasts, I was I was thinking if maybe the same could be said of kind of the the grieving process, and at least in in my experience, when when I allowed myself to kind of have this sense of courageous curiosity to turn towards that pain and that suffering. What I felt emerged was, was kind of, kind of a, a deep connection to the people in my life and the world. And, and perhaps some of that is also, you know, surrendering that kind of self-sufficiency that you just, that you just talked about. But I'm, I'm really interested in this, this connection between like leaning into the impermanence and all of that kind of shadowy broken mirror stuff that we've that we've repressed and Mm -hmm. its relationship to those upsides of joy and love and wonder and awe um yeah sure yeah i mean it's like it's here's the problem (laughs) so like (laughs) whenever we experience painful stuff in our lives whether it be emotionally or physically 
our evolution has designed us in such a way that we can't really recall the experience or the feeling of that experience with a lot of clarity because it's a protection mechanism. Um, you know, so for, I think I put in the book, I think I wrote about this. Uh, for example, if we were to remember what it felt like every time we went to the dentist, we wouldn't go to the dentist because it sucks and it hurts or it has a, you know, it's uncomfortable, but we keep going back <laughs> because our, you know, we know we need to go, but our memory sort of morphs the experience a little bit. So if you map that over to deep trauma or emotional you know, pain, general emotional pain or physical suffering, um, we don't like to remember or acknowledge that stuff. So we think, okay, we'll just swallow it down and forget about it and try and move on, which is a completely understandable thing to do. However, that stuff, as you said, it exists as, in, as the shadow part of ourselves and we feel it whether we can acknowledge it or not. It is there. And I, I think one of the big revelations that came to me through my ayahuasca experiences in the jungle was... Um, that those it's the funkiest thing for me to describe and maybe it's one of those things you just have to experience but like afterwards i was aware as kind of some of the fragments or the foundation of my subconscious was you know felt some seismic impacts i uh i realized the things that i was ignoring that i was completely aware of all my entire life but it was like they were floating right under the surface of my awareness, but I could feel them. I could see them in my interactions. I was like, uh, I, it was only in retrospect. I was like, oh, wow, I've been aware of this stuff all this time. But it's been like this, this like um, opaque you know, thing that's been happening. It was so weird. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, it does completely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can't tell if I'm explaining it clearly or not. But, but like, yeah. So like all the nasty baggage and stuff I thought I had repressed successfully, <laughs> like a good grown man, um, were actually just right out in front, right in front of me. But then I suppose after those experiences, like, oh God, they've been out on the table this entire time. So all that stuff is with us is what I'm trying to say. And um, through acknowledging those things, and it doesn't have to be all at once. It sh probably shouldn't be all at once because it can be quite destructive, mm -hmm. uh, or a very, at the very least, it cause a lot of uh, destabilization. But through allowing yourself to confront, you know, take responsibility for if that if the circumstance calls for it, and begin to talk about and process and work with those things that you're carrying around is the only way to get free of them and to let go of that and to get that weight, to bleed that battery acid out of your system. And that feels uncomfortable. It feels painful because it is. And every time we revisit it, it sucks and it hurts. And that's the thing. It's like, that's going to the dentist. We have to remember that we have to like, just keep in mind, that, okay, it is going to hurt and it's not going to be pleasant. However, what happens after you get out of that and you can start feeling it pretty soon is the lightness. That's when the upside thing starts happening. And it's like the decay is what we experience through the pain. But the upside, the rebirth, the reemergence of the new aspect of yourself that's been dying to move forward is what you begin to feel and experience. And the more you do that, the more you can taste that, the more you actually get a taste for it. And the more that work becomes something you want to do 
as opposed to something that you're forced to. And what you find that's interesting is it's like you ever see a uh, like a sidewalk or something like that that's got some weeds growing up through it, you know, and there's like one that's bust through the concrete. And it's like, holy shit, how did that weed bust through concrete? <laughs> you know, it's because nature's amazing. Um, but if you were to remove, like get a piece of machinery and like remove that giant piece of concrete, there'd be this huge network of weeds growing under there that's like really long and been growing forever. That's the new life. That's the new growth of the self. Mm. And that's what's waiting underneath the concrete and the weight of all of our pain. And there are these little weeds breaking through the concrete. And that's the thing that makes us have these unpleasant reactions to stuff that we don't mm. expect or, th- or feelings or emotions that come out of nowhere or darkness that arises in our expressions in the world that we're like, ooh, where'd that come from? Or why am I in a bad mood? <laughs> Whatever. There's those weeds cracking up. And the more we start to tend those and pull those and dig up that piece of concrete, and work with what's there, the more that all that's allowed to grow into this beautiful garden. Mm, I, I love that. And um, it makes me think that, that for me, meditation is almost like you're kind of gently tugging on the, the weed that's popping through the, popping through the cracks and sitting on an, an ayahuasca ceremony is almost like blasting the concrete <laughs> out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> it just like reveals yes. everything that's, that's underneath, whether or not you're, you're ready for that. Um, Definitely. I, yeah, I, I love that. And um, I've just, I've actually just started attempting to teach meditation myself. And something, this is switching gears slightly, but something that I've been thinking about is that most people kind of realize that if they, if they run every day for like half an hour, then maybe after a few months, they'll probably be able to run a marathon or someone lifting weights, you know, might get a six pack. Um, and I think that we're kind of open to this idea of like, of creating our own mind gym where we can use meditations to train our empathy or our concentration or our detachment. Um, or, or another, another metaphor might be like learning to be a chef where you're kind of gradually experiencing more of these flavors of consciousness for yourself as you're building this taste and sensitivity to these, these delicious states of being. Um, but I, I'm wondering how would you, how would you attempt to describe some of these changes to a, to a beginner meditator um, and what kind of might they expect in the short term and also in what ways would a deeper practice over the years begin to change their their brain and their experience of the world? Yeah, like so the earlier, I think, um, perks of a basic meditation practice, they'll gradually and slowly begin to fade in into daily life. So you'll find that in moments where something where someone said something that normally would have flustered you or frustrated you, you you'll recognize like, oh, wait a second. Why don't I feel like my skin's on fire right now? <laughs> I normally I normally have a reaction to that. But um, I still feel a little bit of warmth. A little, the, the forest is a little burning inside of me, but I don't feel that that skin isn't burning. And I didn't, you know, have this reaction. That's interesting. Or you'll find when you're talking to someone that you have a bit more clarity about what you're talking about or that your speech becomes more precise. Um, you'll find that it's easier to concentrate on things or focus on reading or a task at hand or whatever it might be. Your mind will feel less overwhelmed with static and fuzz and you'll, you'll be, oh, I can uh, conceptualize and think of new ideas more easily. Um, the awareness of how you're feeling about things takes less time to process. Um, 
And so those are the general things, you know, and just a, a general uh, turning down the fidgetiness of your body uh, is something that you, you will also experience through a basic uh, practice. You know, people often are always, just because of the circumstance of our modern world, are always fiddling with something with their hands, you know, always on their phone with a mouse, with a laptop, not a, not a mammal mouse, <laughs> a computer mouse, you know, people always fiddling with mice, mice and rats, marsupials and what have you. Um, yeah, with always with a keyboard or a computer mouse or whatever. And I mean, they make fidget, you know, fidget spinners, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's because we're always fooling with something because the way that we now interact with our world is in these little, through computers, through phones, these bite-sized bite size interactions. Um, and so when you're not doing that, if you do that for 10 hours a day, you get your brain, you know, the neuroplasticity in your brain is like designed to be fooling with something. It's like, well, I'm not interacting with the world if I'm not constantly moving my hands and messing with mm-hmm. something. And so um, that, of course, mirrors the the shape of the mind. And so if you're always in that fragmented process of messing with a keyboard or a phone or whatever, then you feel uncomfortable at first and that's because your mind is still in that zone. But through a basic practice, you start to feel more at rest in your body. You don't feel the the compulsion to be fooling with something like that. And therefore, your mind begins to mirror the, the, your body and your mind begins to feel a bit less frantic and a bit less compulsive and impulsive. Um, through a, a more dedicated practice, one thing is that those things all deepen greatly. Um, you begin to, I think in my experience, um, those things all fade in more, they deepen, and your awareness becomes noticeably more increased. What's interesting is that uh, everything that we experience if you're sitting in your bedroom or wherever it is, all the stuff that's to be perceived is there. The issue is that the wattage of our awareness is only turned up to a certain voltage. So as you, you know what I mean? So as you become more aware, it's not necessarily that the room changes. It's that you begin to know a deeper understanding of the nuances and the detail and all that of the room. And so it's a deepening effect, right, of all things that surround you in your life. And so you, you move that on from your bedroom to life. So you go out into the world, you begin to, you know, it's not that the world changes, the world is simply objectively as it is, but your experience of the world becomes much more deep and nuanced and the, the human, your understanding of human behavior, including your own, the way that future pathway and repercussions and reverberations of how you exist in the world will change and affect other people and how um how to how that you can respond to life in a way that it will bring all of those positive qualities that everyone describes whenever they talk about you know the inner path um all of that becomes a lot more apparent and through that uh you're able to create, you know, change, great change in your life because you're you're really picking up the pen of your story and being able to have more control and ownership and and what have you of your experience because you have the presence of mind and 
the, the, the patience in the moment of your experience to begin to act in the way and um, live in a way that you actually have some you know, consideration in doing as opposed to just mm. reacting based upon your programming. Mm. Um, that's a huge, huge change um, because those things, you know, that way of acting has this, and, and acting may not be the most precise word, perhaps because there's some some slogginess. I'm going to make up that word that that, um, that uh, you know maybe it should suggest that you're portraying an affectation, um, but I would say more exactly that. It's how you are showing up in the world and honoring your intention in the world. Uh, but that has an incredible repercussion because then your world, in quotes, becomes more peaceful. It becomes more positive. And the people in your life begin to identify you and understand you as someone who has that character. And they begin to respond to you in that way. And the whole texture of your your world just shifts um, I, and I'd like to just put an asterisk by this and say that I don't think I'm special in any way whatsoever. However, I will say that it's very funny is that something I joke about with my wife all the time is that there's a, a little natural grocery food store right next to my house. And well, it's not right next to it, but it's close. <laughs> and, uh, uh, every time I'm in there, it's so weird. Every time I'm in there and there's a line. I'll be waiting in line and there could be the store kind of sucks in the sense of like the speed in which you can check out because they'll have like one register open and like 20 people in line always. Uh, And so every time I'm in there and I'm like waiting in line, they'll go open another register and the person, different cashiers, they'll walk directly over to me and they'll say, I can help the next customer come over here, sir. (laughs) Like, and I'm like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it's literally, it's, it's, it's uncanny. It's weird. It, I'm like, is it because I'm bald? Do they feel bad for me? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? Do I look silly? Like, oh, that guy needs some luck. Let's give him a break. Um, but I, you know, I, I wonder if it's not sometimes. I'm like, you know, is it one of those things where when you're giving off wiggle lines of, of life and kindness it does attract people. It makes people, people feel the warmth and the home and the glow. And when they're walking by a bunch of people that look irritated and pissed off because they're waiting in line and there's one happy camper standing there, stuff like that happens, you know? So that's just like, a, it's a, a weird example, but it's one, it's just more of a theatrical example to say that in life, when you start to change and feel this way and embody those, those feelings that it, it really does have an interesting uh, effect on the rest of the way that you experience the world. Yeah, wow. I mean, I I love that, and I've I've not heard you mention the kind of um, the internal like wattage of the battery turned up before, but that that really resonates for me, and it it makes me think of um, I was reading yesterday something that Susan Sontag wrote that she she felt like she had attention surplus disorder, and and I wonder if meditation. Gives this capacity, gives us this capacity to kind of turn up that wattage, and kind of, and that kind of shines through. And it, it makes me think of, um, I remember emerging from this, this like ten day silent vipassana meditation retreat, and it felt like I was kind of riding this high of presence. And I probably, it was probably like that, that wattage was just kind of 
exuding from my brain. And I had similar experiences where people just kind of treated me really well. And um, these kind of serendipitous and synchronistic things happened. And I, I almost got attached to that um, that energy and I could feel it kind of being drained out of me as I went back into London and, you know, going into a supermarket where I was just overwhelmed with all of the stimulus. And I was like, I was, I wanted to keep hold of that, like that precious internal light <laughs> that I felt like was, right. was, was draining away. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. And you, you also, you have this, um, there's a really lovely question in your book that is, uh, it's, it's like, what if, more of your life was lived like mindfully eating a piece of chocolate. And, uh, this, when I, when I read this, it reminded me of something that Aldous Huxley wrote about in a, a novel called The Island. And it's basically a book about this tribe who have a word in their language, parlor, that basically translates to saying grace with your senses. And, uh, mm-hmm. I really love this idea and, um, wondered if, if there were any other kind of like fun, kind of meditation related practices that you do or that you might suggest to people that are kind of off the meditation cushion and that can be done, you know, when you're in a queue uh, for a supermarket or something or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the thing that you're talking about after you came off this Vipassana mm. retreat and you kind of were like high on consciousness, <laughs> um, that's, that's because you were spent all this time, you didn't have all, your environment was changed. So you didn't have all of these distractions and the general habits and patterns in your life that pull you away from the present moment. And you were able to really tap in there in a, in a real way that, you know, and go deeper into that moment, deeper into just existing and being and being in connection and flow with what is, as opposed to having a mind that is caught up elsewhere and, and wrapped up in something else. And it is amazing how you feel different. People respond to you differently because, um, I, in my opinion, it's when you're in that state of present mindedness, um, your intellect is not chewing on your spirit that's trying to come through the fullness of what you are is able to pass through with a, with an ease and uh, that source, you know, whatever you want to describe it as the nerve of the divine that's in all of us. Mm-hmm. That's what we're, it's like the puppet game. We're looking, those are the fingers of the puppet of the divine. We're the puppets. The fingers are coming through all of us. And what we'd like to see is that other finger. Cause like, Ooh, there's the finger of the, uh, the 7 billion fingered God is, <laughs> likes to spot its other fingers and it gets happy and and when it does and it feels good because you okay that's like life energy that's life force mm-hmm. and so when you're in that zone and your intellect is not chewing on chewing all that up that's trying to come through uh then you allow that to flow through and people other people can see it and feel it and that's really that's grace man that's like being able to show up with grace in the world and that's honestly it takes work because like anything, you don't go to the gym once and get, you know, super six pack and then, okay, did that. Now I have a six pack forever. Like you got to keep going to the gym. If you want to keep that six pack, I wouldn't know. I've never had a six pack in my life, but, um, uh, yeah, same thing with, with the mind and with presence and that whole, that whole path is if you want to stay in that, in that space, it just takes some, some practice and some, some discipline. Yeah. Um, but once you once you do it's it's really beautiful and i put you know a big part of my life is is that is i spend 
I do something every day, you know, meditation, of course, uh, five times a week, but, um, and this will just lead uh, casually and conveniently into your question that uh, you asked is that on the days when, you know, if I don't meditate, I'm often doing something as a habit to draw myself back into that state. And um, at home, you know, it could be any, any task really, but something as simple as like, like, as I said, any task, I felt my feet on the ground. Like I felt the flatness of my feet, like laid out, touching the wood, hardwood floors of my house right now where I'm at. Mm. You know, it's like that moment of my mind, just as a, it's built in where as I went to query one of those things, I was like, oh, there's one that I was experiencing as I went to go think of one. I already had one, right? You know, and it's like, but washing the dishes, feeling the warm water running across your hands and, and, the, and the sudsiness of the plates rolling around. That's a beautiful, incredible, rich experience of just being, uh, you know, feeling the, the ceiling fan, the air moving on your skin and just pausing to absorb the fact that you exist and that you're alive and that you have a heartbeat and a mind. And, uh, you know, these type of things are available literally every moment. It's just a matter of drawing your mind back to them. So in, in life, when you're out in the world, uh, some of those practices that you can do, you know, one of my favorites, something I mentioned in the book is like taking little hits of mindfulness uh, waiting in line, you know, is a good one where if you're all of us end up waiting in line somewhere or another. Uh, and so while you're there, you, you, you could be looking at refreshing your phone over and over uh, trying to see if you have a new email. My, a good, my dear friend, the one that I mentioned about how we have dinner every week, uh, in the book, we joke about, um, cause he's a composer, you know, and musician, uh, as well and so <laughs> we joke about uh, did like well back in the day uh we used to joke about check whenever we check our email time we'd say oh did we make it we so we joke about did we let's see if we made it real quick <laughs> let's check our email let's refresh see if we got the email from from whoever you know from scorsese or or, or Jodorowsky or someone saying like hey i want you to work on this film with me all right cool i'm gonna finally make it you know so just pointing out the absurdity of everyone's compulsion to check their email as if there's going to be something so important that's going to be life-changing to you. Um, so instead of standing there online doing that, refreshing, seeing if you've made it or not, uh, just letting that go and just tapping back into your posture because if you have a curved back and a slumped shoulders and a sunken head, it's crushing your lungs. You can't get a deep breath. So, you know, Pulling your, your shoulders back, realigning your posture, allowing your head to float on top, uh, releasing the tension in your face and your, your shoulders, taking some good breaths in, and just taking just that few moments, that five, ten seconds, whatever you have, or perhaps depending on where you're lying, um, much longer time to just get in some good breaths, some grounding moments. And even something as simple as that is a great way to draw yourself back into uh, that that abundance of nowness. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's it's so it's so simple, and I feel like in in those states, it's almost like life turns into a <clears throat> like a constant Japanese tea ceremony. Was was my kind of experience? Yeah, which yeah. is is totally. yeah, is, is so so yeah. so wonderful. 
it's really useful, like things that you're already doing all the time. Like once you can remember to create good habits around mm -hmm. things, it becomes automatic. Like, so for me, like eating, I do that almost every time I eat anything. I just have this, this split second moment where my brain automatically goes, okay, like hold your horses for a second. And, uh, like appreciate and actually engage with what you're about to experience with a little bit of respect and intention. And it's not something that's like, not some, uh, uh, po-faced. I, my friend, John Hopkins hit me to that, that, uh, British word <laughs> slang. <po-faced. laughs> and then that, then that, doesn't that mean like, uh, pie, you know, faultly pious, overly seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. faux spiritual. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Nailed it. Um, <laughs> this kind of yeah, it's not this this overly you know affected thing. It, it, you know, it's just a little like oh yeah, right. Like here's a good moment. I'm gonna really enjoy this. Like appreciate it for this moment in life right now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um. So before we before we wrap up, one of the one of the ideas that I really loved, and I think this might have been in an episode with Annika Harris recently, but you use this metaphor of our subconscious being like biological jazz bands with this infinitely recurring fractal loop that kind of gives the illusion of a single note. And um, this is how I kind of think of the creative process as well, like where these, these fragile human instruments that can occasionally allow ourselves to be tuned up to that, the music of source or the, or the universe to flow through us. And I remember that this, I think this was in an email exchange a while ago, but you, you mentioned that your father-in-law once gave you some some advice to just be more Corey, and I, as I was finishing your book last night, I noticed in the in the acknowledgments you thank the the eyes within you for in some way allowing the fullness of of you to come through onto the pages. So I'm wondering, and I'm I'm definitely speaking for myself here. How do we how do we allow that to happen and get out of our own way, and you know maybe take the the greater risk of being more human. Yeah, well, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's one, understand that it's a process and it takes time. But the, the first step at uh, achieving anything in the mind uh, is awareness. And so the meditation, you know, I know we've been harping on meditation a lot, but it's a very useful tool um, because it creates the space that gives you more self-awareness. So through a simple meditation practice, even five minutes a day, you'll begin to recognize the way that you shift and change throughout your life. So when you engage with one person at your job or work or whatever, you realize you sort of talk and act in one way. And then you notice, well, this person at work, I subtly shift to being this guy or this woman or whatever a little bit. And then when I'm with my partner, I'm this person. And when I'm with the my, you know, my friends, I'm this person, I'm whatever. When I'm with my parents, I regress to being this person or whatever it is. And you begin to see like, wait a second, there's all these different me's. There's all these Johnny's in there. What, what's going on? Who's who am I? What am I? And the more you begin to recognize those things, the more you can begin to allow those things, those eyes to melt into one. And you see that often we we don't we it's not that we um put forward one dimension of ourselves per se but we block out a lot of the other 
totalness of ourselves in certain situations. It's a natural way of social integration that we do because we feel that by doing so, we'll be more accepted by you know whoever it is that we're engaging with by touching on them of what we perceive is their level or their note. But that idea, although it comes from an instinctual place, is very limiting. It's also very stupid <laughs> because to, just, to, <laughs> to assume that we understand the fullness of what anybody yeah, is is ridiculous. Right. And then also to assume that one person is just this one note, single dimension of a critter is also ridiculous. And it takes a, just a little bit of courage and, and comfort to allow parts of yourself to come forward that might seem like they don't fit in that scenario. And I'm not saying like, you know, don't use a bunch of filthy language around your mom unless you want to, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying allowing, you know, these other dimensions of yourself to come forward in these situations. Mm-hmm. And you'll see what happens nine times out of 10 is that that person whoever you're engaging with, that you show something new of yourself to, they'll see, oh, it's safe to let that part of myself come forward too. And what's amazing is that once you do that and you become a unified you throughout your your life, one, you just feel more comfortable in, in your own skin and you are who you are. Like we would be having this, well, generally, you know, I would be having the same tone and the same, I'd be talking the same way with practically anyone I would talk to in life, unless I felt like it was, uh, uh, I could communicate more clear to them in a different way. Um, and so, uh, once you do that, then you'll realize that you'll, you'll see, you can bring that fullness to everyone. And then most people you talk to will open up and just feel comfortable and will able to be who they are much more quickly, if not almost instantaneously, uh, as opposed to this, like getting to know someone else or like to spending years, like accessing these different rooms and other people, mm-hmm. you can just show up be comfortable, be who you are. And that gives them the, the okay and the green light to come through and do the same thing. And essentially you're just, you're get you're clearing away the bullshit and connecting heart to heart, like real fast, as opposed to um, playing the human game. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So before we, before we wrap up, where is, where's the best place for curious listeners to, to get in touch and learn more about you and the Astral Hustle and obviously get their hands on the new book, Now is the Way? Yeah, if they go to nowistheway.com, that's connected to my mm-hmm. site. Um, so there's all the book stuff is there, but then also that'll take them to the Astral Hustle my podcast, which doesn't have to do with space or astrobodies <laughs> particularly. Only occasionally. Um, yeah, only occasionally, only when the circumstances call for it. Uh, and then all the other stuff is there too. So Awesome. Yeah, that's the awesome. And it, yeah, it, it really is a, a fantastic book for, I think, anyone who's curious about meditation or just generally, generally being human. Um, so yeah, we'll wrap up with a question that is inspired by a Rilke line that I really love that goes something along the lines of try to love the questions themselves and perhaps you will then gradually live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is the question that you feel like you're living yourself right now? 
And what question might you leave our listeners with? I think the question I'm I'm living right now is um, how can I keep doing what I'm doing but be more effective and uh, continue to be more outwardly and inwardly effective at the same time. Um, I feel like uh, as, you know, things for me have, have grown and my podcast has grown and, and uh, all that stuff, uh, I don't, I just want to continue to get even more connected and, and continue uh, just learning how to share better and share more. And, and um, I, you know, I, I, everything I'm doing is really, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to offer and understand what it means to be human myself and figure out ways to live with less suffering and to understand myself to be the best force I can be in the world for positivity, for constructive ideas, for equanimity, for peace. And I really think it's possible to not make that a complete, uh, like, uh, to, not to, for not to be the totality of everyone, because I, I don't know that that's possible. I think that, Honestly, for a battery to give off energy, it needs a negative and a positive end. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always going to be friction. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that perhaps the the cycles and the time and the weight of that can be increased. And um, I want to do everything I can to uh, spread as much of that self-understanding and love and uh, peacefulness and just Comfort. I know it's a, perhaps a weird way to phrase it, but comfort. Mm. I want like people don't feel all right. People are freaked out. Like if you're born, you get you're just freaked out. Life is weird and it's tough, and people don't, no one feels comfortable. But uh, I feel comfortable, and I want to share that with people. <laughs> <laughs> but I only feel comfortable because I was uncomfortable forever, and like, just ate enough shit and and gritted my teeth long enough until I figured out how to feel all right. I want to try and share, save some people some time and share my map, you know? Mm. So that's the question is how can I do that better? Mm. Sorry that took, I had to talk that out a little mm. bit, but it's how can I do all that better? Mm. No, I, I love that. And, and I, I feel like you, you have, um, you've created this map and it's almost like you're this kind of cartographer of, of nowness. And you've taken what I think for a lot of people is this, this here be dragons landscape of the inner world and created these like, funny and imaginative signposts to point to states of being <laughs> and experiences which which words don't really do justice to um so <laughs> thank you so much that, that's one of the areas where my weird like the hanger of hangover of my like uh young youthful arrogance really comes in handy because it'll be this big like daunting i've always been like this like a big daunting idea or task and i like people or myself would walk up to it and be like, oh my God, that looks like an insurmountable mountain. I'd be like, oh, fuck that mountain. We'll figure this out in like two minutes. Like that, that has been really useful. <laughs> but it, it, you know, fortunately that grew into the humor thing. You know? It's like, all right, this is a big deal. 
Everybody calm down. We'll figure this out. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, amazing. Well, um, well, thank you. Thank you so, so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, yeah, and I think we'll, we'll wrap the show with that. Cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast and um, for everything that you're doing. And I, I do genuinely... First off, I enjoyed this. Maybe it's a little rude because I talked most of the time, but I, I really enjoyed our conversation, everything, all of your questions and your, your thoughtful ideas that you brought to the conversation. Um, and also, I, uh, on a personal note, I really enjoy uh, and have been grateful for our email correspondence. You know, there have been uh, during a few moments where I've been chewing on a lot of stuff at once, uh, there have been a few communications and things that we've connected through uh that have just been really useful and valuable to me so thank you for that man i appreciate it oh man that that means a lot and um the feeling is mutual like i've i've listened to probably cumulatively hundreds of hours of the ashland hustle so this is uh this has been really fun for me too beautiful we did it <laughs> we did it we made it happen amazing yeah <laughs> okay I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please share it. Check out Corey's book at nowistheway.com. And this episode's question is, how might you allow the fullness of yourself to come through and risk being more human? I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.